Mahatma Gandhi was once asked if he could describe in 25 words or less what his life mission was. And he said in response, well, I can describe it in three words. Those three words were renounce and enjoy. Which is also a wonderful description of both a meditation retreat and the life of Dhamma, to renounce and enjoy. This unusual combination of concepts becomes effective when we begin to consider transforming desire into love. Or in other words, when we see the energy of desire as being similar to that of devotion. And we then use the force of the power of understanding to see if what we are devoting ourselves to is actually bringing us happiness or not. In this sense, using the word desire, we don't judge it and we don't condemn it. We see it almost as a force of self-love. That we, as all beings, wish to be happy. And so there's this urge or this longing to feel whole or to feel complete, to feel ourselves perhaps to be a part of something greater than our limited sense of ourselves and our lives. That all beings want to be happy. We all long for happiness and all too often express this longing in a way that is distorted or affected by ignorance. We want to be happy and we don't really understand what's going to make us happy. We can take this force of desire and transmute it into the purest love for ourselves and for others once we understand what actually does make us happy. One of the keys to finding this understanding is to see that restless craving, jumping from object to object, isn't really very satisfying. You know, one moment we want this, and then we want that, and then we want that it doesn't bring much feeling of satisfaction or completion. And what we see in looking very carefully is that much more happiness comes from letting go of that which is incomplete, that which is not fulfilling, that which is unnecessary, than ever comes from running around looking for a new experience, a new stimulation, or from holding on, from grasping. True happiness comes from seeing that which we do not need, that which is not bringing us what we actually want, and being able to let go of it. This actually reinforces our deepest intention which is this wish to be happy. 
through this clear seeing, through our effort, the hindrances to this gradually begin to fall away. And we can easily unhook from things that we might have previously been very attached to. But it's important to understand that when we talk about letting go, we don't mean like an angry rejection of something that is. That renunciation, in fact, isn't a bitter ordeal, some terrible, miserable austerity that we can think about perhaps someday being strong enough to undertake. That really renunciation is a very elegant refinement of the mind. It's being free from entanglement and free from limitation. It's like turning back the tide of attachment. And once again, there is that question, what do I really need right now in order to be happy? When we practice letting go, we practice renunciation, then it's like a practice of overcoming all the things that stand between ourselves and freedom, all of these barriers between ourselves and a very genuine happiness and sense of peace. To have a thing and to enjoy and experience isn't really the problem. What is a problem is mistaking this enjoyment for something that it isn't. We have many happy and pleasant moments throughout a single day. But when we take any one of these experiences to be solid or to be substantial, to be unchanging, to be ours in a sense of ownership, to be under our control, all of these mistaken ideas are the problem. Because then we are hoping for or expecting a quality in our experience that we will never find. As we look deeply within ourselves, then we see these patterns of entanglement and frustration over and over again. We see the consequences of this holding on. We see the pain that we experience. And so we let go. We let go out of the sense of compassion and love for ourselves. Not out of aversion and fear towards what we find. It's not like throwing something down or discarding it, saying, you know, I hate you, I can't bear you, I can't stand having you as part of my experience. That's not what we mean by letting go. But really, out of love for ourselves, we let go of what we don't need. And so all of that energy is returned to ourselves, and we can devote ourselves to freedom. Letting go means to see things as they actually are, to see them for what they are, 
not to create a solidity around our experience, to be able to watch it change. That's really renunciation. Is not to add anything to the very natural flow of events as experiences come and they pass away. Not to create something like a superstructure on top of it. Renunciation isn't moving from a feeling of abundance to one of deprivation or destitution, but really it's the other way around. Because with the force of clinging or grasping, hoping that things will be solid, they'll be permanent, there's always fear that comes with that. To practice letting go means that we're moving from fear to fearlessness. If we're relying on anything to stay the same, not to change, then we're going to suffer. If we're relying on anything to give us a very permanent happiness, we're going to suffer. There's nothing that we can have that we can't lose. And so if our basic relationship to people, to objects, to experiences is one of having, then we know that just one little turn of the wheel and it's going to change. And so there's always the fear of loss, inherent in that sense of having with people, with things, with states of being like fame and good fortune, all of these things. If we rely on them, we're going to suffer. Rather than leaning upon or being dependent upon conditioned, transient experiences, we learn to create space. We learn to create light in the mind, which is like letting go of a burden. And it's there, it's within that, that we find our happiness. You know, ordinarily, if we're considering how we are, we tend often to think that we're in a state of balance. And that from time to time, in very extraordinary situations, we lean forward to hold on in a state of grasping or clinging. But really, when we look, we see that almost all of the time we are holding on. We're holding on to people. We're holding on to opinions. We're holding on to concepts, to experiences. The state of holding on is one of tension. It's one of stress. This is the imbalance that we experience without really knowing it. That actually we are in disharmony. It is so very rare in our lives to have a rest from wanting. Wanting to get something. Wanting to be something. Wanting to keep something wanting to avoid something. 
It's pretty continual. This movement forward of craving in the mind in and of itself is tension. It's like if you can imagine what it would feel like in the body if we spent all day long leaning forward. It would really hurt to be leaning, to be out of balance, to be creating and recreating this tension. In just that way the body would hurt, actually our minds or our hearts do hurt in this state of stress, of leaning forward. The path is one of letting go. It's feeling the pain of that leaning forward and relaxing, sitting back, relinquishing, taking this very tight fist that is holding on and opening up. This is the path. This returns us to stillness and it returns us to peace. That's why the practice of renunciation is actually a big relief. It's not this awful ordeal, but it's really tremendous relief. And this is why when we talk about effort in the practice, we talk about right effort, as the Buddha called it, it's not one of forward leaning, of reaching out to get or to have or to own a certain wondrous transcendental experience. It's not reaching out to avoid what's actually here right now. But it is this movement of leaning back, of discovering we're out of balance, coming back to that still point, which is natural and radiant and pure. It's very easy to mistake right effort for another form of craving, to hold on and to reject the truth of the present moment, but rather see that we are out of balance to begin with, and that we need to cultivate effort to be sensitive to the state we are in, to feel the pain of it, and to come back. This act of letting go isn't something that is a great intellectual or metaphysical debate. You know, like, is it time to let go now? Or, you know, is it too soon to let go? Or should I let go slowly? Should I let go quickly? You know, can I let go? Am I capable of it? When will I learn how to do it? Am I doing it well enough? The Buddha used the example of seeing that many of the things we hold on to in our lives is the equivalent of holding on to a red-hot iron burning ball. The reason we hold on to it is because we are so desensitized, we actually don't feel the pain that we are experiencing, even though we are actually experiencing it. What we do in the practice is come so deeply in touch with our own experience that we feel that. Now, if you are holding a red-hot iron-burning ball in your hand and you became aware of that fact, 
very directly and very deeply. And do you think you would really have an intellectual debate about whether you were capable of letting go or not, or whether it was time to let go or not, or is this the best way to let go? You know, maybe there's a better way of letting go. And we don't do that. We let go. It's the most natural thing in the world. Out of this movement, which is devotion towards our own well-being. We all want to be happy. And what we need to do is to see the relationship for ourselves and deeply, directly see the relationship between grasping and suffering. And that is all we need. To see that we perpetuate a sense of limitation through grasping. It's like we project all of our happiness into some limited object. You know, if only I had this, then I would be happy. If only I had nice sensations in my body when I sat instead of pain, then I would be happy. If only I had nicer thoughts instead of these wretched, malevolent thoughts, you know, then I would be happy. It's like we define our happiness in some particular experience. And if only we had it, and if only we could keep it forever and unchanging, then we would be all right. Then we would feel okay. But really, our potential for happiness is limitless. It's boundless. It's not contained in an object or another person or in a mind state. And so if we fix it in something and we need for this thing not to change, we're in trouble. And we're overlooking an immense wealth of happiness that comes not from what is happening in the moment, but how we are relating to it. Like the most precious thing we can have is our state of mind. We have all been in some lovely situations with nice people and loving energy and beautiful surroundings and we've been depressed or we've been afraid. And we don't look back on those times as the great times. And probably all of us as well have had certain situations where things have been very difficult and the people around us haven't been very helpful and it seems like everything is falling apart and nothing is working. It's all very difficult and very painful. But for some reason, we feel filled with faith at that time. Or we have a different perspective on things and we feel a kind of lightheartedness or a sense of spaciousness, and we know everything is going to be okay. And those times, as difficult as they would be viewed externally, are really all right. Because that is where our true happiness can come. That this is our most precious possession, if you will, Because nobody can ever take it away from us. No thing can ever mar it. 
it is not conditioned, it is not dependent upon things remaining static and unchanging. We see as we practice that actually we tie ourselves to bondage through attachment and through identification. Just look at, for example, the kinds of self-images that we perpetuate and the stories of permanence that we tell ourselves about who we are, how we represent ourselves to the world. You know, I must have had, I don't know how many sittings, countless, countless sittings, not in the very beginning of my practice, which was all very painful, but some ways into it when my body began to open up and I was experiencing these lovely sort of tingling rushes through my body and and it felt really light, like I was floating. and I had all of these very sweet, serene mind states. And every single time this happened, my first thought would be, oh, isn't it going to be lovely living the entire rest of my life just this way? (laughs) And I I was living in India then, And I would sit there and begin these huge runs of fantasy, thinking, well, gee, maybe in five years, you know, I'll go back to America and I'll go back to New York. And I just saw myself wearing my white sari, kind of floating down the streets of New York (laughs) with this beatific smile on my face, you know, in precisely that mind state, knowing full well that it was never, ever going to change, that this was now who I was. What happened? You know, 20 minutes later, or half an hour later, you know, 35 minutes later, all of a sudden, I was bored and I was restless and my knees hurt and my back hurt and my head hurt. And every single time I thought, what went wrong? You know, what did I do that made that lovely state, which was clearly the true me, go away? And it took me a long time, actually, to stop blaming myself and to see that it wasn't that I had blown it in some significant way, but really just that things change. That it was all right, that that was natural, it was inevitable. Things felt one way at one time and they felt differently at another time. And that that was not my fault, that was the way things are. So look at the images that we create. And if we identified with every single thing that went through the mind in one hour sitting, you know, I'm the best yogi here, I'm the worst yogi here, I should never have come, I wish the retreat lasted a year. You know, I think I'll leave now, I think I need a drink of water, maybe I'll, you know. And if we followed every intention that came up in the mind, just think how many times you would stand up and sit down right in this hall. You know? Really, we learn just to let go. Not to identify, not to cling, not to grasp, not to create a sense of solidity out of these very fleeting, constantly changing forces 
that arise and pass away. We devote ourselves to the end of suffering and we learn to let go. We let go basically of that which we don't need. Once again, this doesn't mean we push it away and we cultivate fear and we cultivate anger, but rather it means that we learn not to cling and to return to stillness. This means to return to a very ethical and compassionate life. Another way of seeing it is, as the Buddha said, let go of what is not yours. So we investigate what is not ours in the sense of ownership, in the sense of possession. The first thing that we see clearly is that the body is not ours because we can't control it. It's not that there's a being that can somehow rule this body according to its wish or according to its will or its whim. The body has its own nature. And that includes growing older, at times being sick. And certainly it includes dying. That there is no way in the world we can wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and say, you know, I thought about it very carefully and I've weighed all of the pros and cons and, you know, I've decided not to grow old. You know, or I've decided not to die. It's not a decision. The body has its own nature. And this is a part of it. This is natural. We ask ourselves what death is to us. Mostly, I think people would say that it's the end of all that we've become attached to. That we stop experiencing all of the things that we are attached to. So we feel fear with that concept. But really we can learn to let go far before our actual physical death. To let down the burden. To see that the body is not ours. We can't control it. (coughs) That it follows its own nature. And that's all right. That to experience disease, to get older, to die, is not something that we need to feel personally humiliated by, as people do very often. It's not an isolated event. It's not something we need to deny. This is from Chuang Tzu. He said, How do I know that being attached to life is not a delusion? How do I know that in hating death I am not like a person who, having left home in their youth, has forgotten the way back? The body is not ours. We see that in a moment-to-moment level. 
in the practice that this body, what we call this body, is really earth, air, water, and fire. All of these elements coming together in different combinations, coming apart, breaking apart. We experience changing sensations all of the time, and that really is the body. It's the only body we can know. And that is outside of our control. We experience heat and cold, and heaviness and lightness, and fluidity, cohesion, movement and stiffness. But this is the body. We can certainly sit in more or less comfortable ways, but there is no way to live in a body and not experience any pain at all. We have all tried for a long time. And while one may come up with what seems to be the perfect combination of meditation devices, it's interesting sometimes to take a tour of this room late at night with nobody in here. <laughs> it's amazing. You know, it's a whole technology. And that's fine, but still in the end, to live in a body means that there's going to be pain. The body is not ours, and we can learn to let go of that drive to control what can't be controlled. And we see that sensory experience is not ours, that pleasure and pain continually revolve in our lives. If you examine one day, or just one sitting, really come to understand what the Buddha taught when he talked about the six ways in which we know the world. That is through seeing and hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, and through mind objects, through thoughts and ideas and emotions that these six ways of knowing the world, these six modes of consciousness, are our universe. And that in any given moment, what we experience is contact of a sense door with a sense object. We have eyes, for example. A visual object arises and there's contact, and so there's consciousness of seeing. The next moment, it may be consciousness of hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, mind objects. And every single one of these moments of contact, of consciousness and experience, has a component that is called in the Buddhist psychology, feeling. Which doesn't mean, as we normally use the word here, in this culture, but it actually specifically means just a quality of pleasantness or unpleasantness or neutrality that comes with that experience as a part of it, as an integral part of it, whether it's seeing, hearing, tasting, or whatever. We experience it as pleasant or painful or as neutral. If we are 
not paying attention, if we are unaware at that moment of experiencing feeling, then what arises is craving and fear. We try to hold on to the pleasant experience. We try to push away the unpleasant experience. And we don't experience very fully, we don't know very completely that which is neutral. We're kind of half asleep. And this leads to clinging, to movement, to that leaning forward, to being out of balance. The Buddha said, the foolish person seeks contact, the wise person seeks to understand it. When we're not racing around after another moment of pleasant seeing, or pleasant hearing, or pleasant touching, or pleasant thinking, and we can relax, then what we find is in that silence of mind, there's really a luminosity, that it's radiant. That the happiness we experience just from being still, not running around all of the time, is very beautiful, is very complete. What we call restlessness is really that energy of running. It often arises because we're having a certain experience and we discover that we can't control it. And so the mind leaps ahead to another experience to see if it can control that. If you think about planning, for example, which is a, a common aspect of restlessness in the mind. I don't know if you've ever looked at the range of planning thoughts you've had, but I've done it, and it's so interesting how much they're really about trying to control what hasn't yet come as though that were possible. I used to sit in India and have this range of plans. I don't know if I ever got as far as 1990. This was almost 20 years ago. But they all centered about the fact, which was very obvious to me, that I was going to spend the entire rest of my life living in India, practicing meditation. Most of the plans were about how I was going to make sure that that happened. You know, where I was going to get my visa extension in 1982 and, you know, 83 and 84 and, you know, how I was going to have the money and how I was going to stay healthy and all of these things because I knew that I was never going to come back here to live. And in fact, when I first came back in 1974, I came back with the complete conviction that I was coming back for three or four months in order to just create the conditions that would allow me to go back to India for the rest of my life. And I don't really need to say anything about that. <laughs> but I think about the hours I spent in India, you know, just planning and planning and planning. because I knew how things had to unfold. And of course, none of it ever happened. 
in just that way. I finally, in kind of a desperate moment, to veer my mind away from all of that planning, said to myself, why are you trying to extend your stay in India? You're completely wasting the time you're here anyway. You know, so why waste another 15 years? Just actually come to be where you are. And also we can see that the mind is not ours in the sense that we cannot control what will arise. The Taoists have this expression about all of these flows of events. They call it the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. Who can control what arises in the mind? Whether it's restlessness or planning or anticipation or remembering sorrow, no one can control what will arise in the mind that is completely outside of our sphere of responsibility. We can certainly develop an appropriate relationship to it, one where we are not entangled in those things that will bring us suffering. We can cultivate an appreciation of those things that bring us joy. But nobody can control what will arise. And so to blame ourselves, because a particular emotional state or mind state or thought pattern has come up is really the equivalent of blaming ourselves for growing older. It's not our fault. Who can walk into this room and sit down with a firm resolve like, okay, I've suffered enough. You know, no more guilt for the rest of the retreat. It's just not going to come up anymore. Yeah, well, good luck. If conditions come together for guilt to arise in the mind, it's going to arise in the mind. That is not our problem. What is our problem is developing an appropriate relationship to it. It's letting go of the burden. First, we let go of our crudest attachments. And that means learning how to live in a way that is harmonious. To let go of the things that create the most suffering for us, which means behaving, letting go of behavior and action that creates tremendous suffering for us because it is so out of harmony, it's, it's unethical. That's the first thing we let go of. Then we let go of obsessive mind states that keep us spinning. By learning the craft of concentrating the mind. Knowing how to drop things without anger, without fear, without judgment. Very gently, but very completely, again and again. We let go of these things because we don't need them and because they're not ours. We learn to let go of our craving for contact. And we see that it's not that we are incomplete and need to experience something to know completion. 
We can allow all of these different experiences to come and go as they do without leaning forward, without grasping. And then we learn to let go of this leaning forward even in the most subtle sense. Even the craving we experience for the very next breath we can let go of and come back to center. We let go of all of this. We let go of the body and the identification with the body. We let go of the mind, the identification with the mind. We let go of sensory experiences and the need to perpetuate them in order to feel whole. And that is the experience of nibbana. That is freedom. Which can be seen as the most refined possible aspect of renunciation. So it's not something that we get. It's not an experience that we can crave, create, and hold on to. It's not something we can proclaim. It's not like a trophy, you know. I came home from the retreat with Nibbana, you know, and I I put it up on display. It's what arises, what we open to when we let go. When we let go enough and continuously enough so that we're not leaning forward at all. We're not anticipating, we're not craving, we're not claiming things to be our own. We cultivate right effort to come back, to relinquish, to experience peace. This is our path. It's like learning how to trust. This leaning forward is our effort to control. It's to grab, not being confident about what will come next, needing to hold on to the pleasure that comes our way, feeling that we need to push away when things are difficult. We learn how to trust. This is really right effort. I'll close with this quotation from Ryokan. It says, Abandon this fleeting world. Abandon yourself. Then the moon and flowers will guide you along the way. Let's sit together. This talk was given by Sharon Salzberg at Insight Meditation Society on September 27, 1990. It is an offering of the dark. 
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.